Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Kohler Smart Toilets introduce a new standard of design and cleanliness, sculptural forms, intuitive technology, and total personalization with integrated warm water cleansing, heated seats, and warm air dryers. For peace of mind and convenience, there are touchless lids, seats, flush, and a self-sanitizing bidet wand. Now you can even use voice commands with Numi 2.0, featuring built-in Amazon Alexa. Explore the complete lineup at Kohler.com slash smart toilets and discover what you've been missing. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. I'd like you to listen to a couple of sounds. He was a complete creation of his own making. I was the very, very first in the whole world. Not plenty of other people. I've got uh, four sisters and two brothers. They've all got plenty of kids. I've got plenty of kids on Jim will fix it. So my kids, uh, to me anyway, the best sorts of kids is they all go home to their parents. Me to do things for him. He wanted me to fondle him. He asked me for oral sex. We gave him every instrument that he needed in Brooklyn to prey on some extremely damaged individuals. Sir James Savile, OBE, the man who has single-handedly raised more than £30 million for charity. Why have you said in interviews that you don't have emotions? Because it's easier. The truth is, I'm very good at masking them. I'm a rare breed insofar as I'm a single fella, uh, and which is why... When people say, there are five places you've got to live in. Aren't they expensive? And I say, not as expensive as a wife. Now, the Metropolitan Police say that it will now take the lead in investigating sex abuse allegations 
against the late Sir Jimmy Savile as more women come forward claiming to have been assaulted by the television presenter. Who's your best pal, Tony? Oh, look, No, Desmond. He's not. He is. No, he's not. Get off me. Because he's a married man. Okay. Yes, you do. Oh. Well, no. I'm just squashing. <laughs> not until you say me. Now, me, when I stand in front of the table and St. Peter's there, he says, you are not coming in. Uh, and I'll say, well, why not? And he'll say, because you're a villain. And, and he'll show me the debit side. And I'll say, hang about. And I'll show him the credit side. And he does that mean anything? And if he says, that means nothing, then I'll threaten to break his fingers. What does she do with the cable, boys? <laughs> and I didn't want to. And he promised me that if I gave him oral sex, that he would arrange for me and my friends I hope it's been a very good week for you, and here's a very good set of fixes for you. Here we go now with a letter from Leeds. Yeah, Leeds. Me? So I promise. I promise. That you, Jimmy Savile. You, Jimmy Savile. Are the only one. Are the only one. In my life. I was 14. Of course I wanted to go to television centre. I didn't want to give him more facts. I thought it was disgusting, but I did that. Gary Glitter was one example. He was particularly horrible and only interested in getting as much sex as he could possibly get from any girl. I'd start with manipulative, then controlling. And very, very clever. It has become a great British institution. Not bad for just another zany DJ. But there's a lot more to cigar-smoking Jimmy than meets the eye. I can remember seeing him having sex with one of the girls from Dunkraft in Jimmy Sadler's dressing room. I was the very, very first in the whole world to run a dance to record. <laughs> you used to be a wrestler, didn't you? I need a lamp. I am. I'm feared in every girls' school in this country. Hello, and welcome to the Deathcast. I'd like to thank you for once again joining me, best-selling author Ian Totten, as we prepare to take our fifth look into the life and crimes of Sir Jimmy Seville, OBE. Before we go diving into Jimmy's life, I want to thank everyone who has stuck with the show from the beginning, as well as the thousands of new listeners who have jumped on board over the course of the last three weeks. That's a direct result of private investigator Ed Opperman having me on his show, as well as Netflix's new documentary, which I will be talking about once we get into the show today. As always, if you enjoy the DeathCast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave a five-star review. They really do help the show get recommended to new listeners. If you'd like to follow me on the social media, you can find me on Facebook, MeWe, Instagram, YouTube. Just search for Ian Totten, author, or the DeathCast. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Corpse Creek. If you'd like to sign up for the show's mailing list, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click sign up on the form that pops up, and you're in. I don't send a lot of mail, 
and I'd never send spam. If you'd like to help support the show, there's two ways that you can do this. One, on the Corpse Creek Publishing website, there's a donate button. Click on that. Whatever you think what I do is worth, buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of cigarettes. No amount is too large, and certainly no amount is too little. All is appreciated. All proceeds go to help with the production of this show. If you would like to become a Patreon member of this show, which will give you access to exclusive perks such as exclusive content in the form of Patreon-only episodes, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. That's tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. There are two tiers up there now, a $2 tier and a $5 tier. Again, every amount that comes in from that helps offset the cost of not only producing this show, but putting it up on the various platforms that it is on. Most people don't realize it costs anywhere from $20 to $30 a month to make sure that your podcast gets out onto all the various podcast platforms such as Apple Podcast, Amazon, Audible, Stitcher, you name it, it costs money. So go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon and become a patron member. Alright. Pretty quick open this week. Find yourself somewhere comfortable to sit. Get yourself a drink. Sit back, relax, close your eyes. I've got my coffee. I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. Before we get into the meat of what we're going to be talking about this week, couple things have come up. I've had a number of people contact me asking me various things as to how I can make some of the statements that I'm making with no proof. There is proof. In, unless I quantify something beforehand by stating that it's speculation, there is documented proof out there that is available for anyone who's willing to go and look for it. This is in the form of various police reports, newspaper articles, reports that were prepared by various organizations, as well as statements made by Seville himself. You have to remember, Seville was in the public eye from roughly 1958 until he died in 2011. So there's a lot of statements out there that he himself made. And fortunately, there is backing documentation in the form of various police reports concerning himself and others that back up the things that he had said. Another thing people have been reaching out to me about is the documentary that Netflix released this past week on Jimmy Seville. When I say a lot of people have reached out to me, I'm talking I've received three or four hundred emails at Corpse Creek Publishing, as well as messages on Facebook about this documentary called Jimmy Seville, A British Horror Story. People wanting to know what my thoughts are on this two-episode show. I didn't like it. And I'll tell you why. They told a 
amalgamation of the British government and the BBC version of the Jimmy Seville story. And what I mean by that, it's a very sanitized version of the story of Jimmy Seville. If you've been listening to this series, you'll know I started out with when he was born and have been working my way forward from them. The documentary did not do any of that. They jumped into Seville is already famous when the series begins. They didn't talk about his upbringing, really. They didn't touch on his ties to organized crime in the Manchester area via Bill Benny and the Craze or any of the various encounters he had with law enforcement prior to becoming a national icon. They really just jumped into he's the biggest thing on the planet in terms of British television and pop culture in Britain without getting into any of the stuff that came before, which I personally feel is important to show not only where he came from, but also the character of the individual. They skipped over all of that. And more than that, they had two individuals, I believe it was, in the second part of the program that spoke openly about the abuse that they suffered at the hands of Jimmy Seville. I know who both of these individuals are. I've known who they are for some time. One of the individuals, I believe, the other one I do not believe for the simple fact that her story is an amalgamation of another story that came out from a girl who was actually abused on BBC property. This woman stated that she was abused over a period of time inside of a church every Sunday at Leeds General Infirmary. Unfortunately, that's not possible because Jimmy Seville never stayed in any place for more than a few days at a time if he could avoid it. So the idea that Jimmy Seville was in Leeds every single Sunday for months on end, right there, that's a giant red flag that never happened. Even in his later years, once his star had faded and he was no longer on television, he never stayed in an area for more than a few days at a time. That's one of the reasons why he had so many homes and why he had so many camper vans around the nation, because he did not like to stay put in one area. The second red flag for me was her age given at the time. Reality is Seville did not go for people who were the age that she stated she was. She stated she was seven years old. She's one of a number of people who came forward well after the established victims came forward and jumped on the bandwagon to state that I was, you know, X years old and Seville abused me. Seville's victimology is roughly from age 14 onward. There is no verifiable documentation to state that Seville abused anyone who was outside of that age range. Yes, a lot of people came forward stating that he did. However, the majority of those people who came forward came forward towards the tail end of the inquiries into Seville's behaviors. 
much like a number of young men came forward to state that they were abused by Seville, which, if you listened to last week's episode, I went too into in depth. I believe that's absolute bullshit. There is nothing in Jimmy Seville's makeup, whether it's what we know or what was hidden, to indicate that Jimmy Seville took pleasure in the sexual abuse of boys. He always went after females. He stuck to a very prescribed age range, for the most part, which was 14 to 17 years old, because those are the young women who came around him in his various tasks as an entertainer. Those are the ones he had access to, and they were the easiest for him to abuse. The other red flag for me is her story about having to stick tampons and what have you up inside of her. This is a red flag for me because there is a story inside of one of the reports. I believe it was the BBC report compiled by Dame Janet Smith, where the woman was... 15 years old and stated that Seville abused her over a number of months at Television Center during his various recordings of Top of the Pops. This is one that came out really early on during the investigation to Seville and it seems to me that the woman who claims that she was abused inside of the church has taken this other lady's story and you know, put it on as her own. And there's a lot of reasons why people would do this. Some people, I believe, were honestly abused, but they lack the ability to actually confront their actual accusers. But there's also a lot of people out there who saw what was going on with the maelstrom that sprung up around Jimmy Seville concerning allegations of his abuse and saw that his estate, and let's not pass over this. Jimmy Seville was worth millions of dollars when he died. There were payouts coming up from his estate towards his victims, and people saw this and knew that they could get a payday, and a lot of people unfortunately jumped onto the bandwagon. I'm not saying that everybody who came forward was full of shit. I believe a lot of these stories, but when I get people coming up saying I was, you know, five, six years old and he abused me, or, you know, I was a 14-year-old boy and we were in a room filled with people and he raped me in front of them, I'm calling bullshit. The reasons being, as I've already stated, historically, abusers of Seville's character do not change gender and rarely, if ever, will go outside of their operating range of age. Yeah, Seville did go and abuse adults, female adults. This is documented. There is also evidence that Seville had willing partners who were aged between 14 on up. There's no real documented evidence other than hearsay of Seville having gone under that age range and outside of his gender. And this is the reason why 
the majority of people in Britain, and don't let the documentary or news reports fool you on this, most people in Britain don't believe that Jimmy Seville actually did the things that he's accused of. That's a bit of a blanket statement, but I have quite a number of friends in Britain and most of them have told me the majority of the people I know don't believe he's done it. So there go. I can make that statement. I personally believe that he did do a lot of the things that were stated about him. But I also don't believe that he was a serial pedophile by definition of the term pedophile, which is someone who goes after adolescence. Seville was an individual who targeted those who he knew he could get what he wanted from, whether that person was of age or not. Therefore, he was a sexual predator, not a pedophile. There's a big difference. If Seville had done nothing but go after, you know, preteen girls, that would be a completely different story. But as you will see while we get into this, he did not target just preteen girls. He did not target just 14 to 17-year-olds. He actually targeted women in their 20s, women in their 30s, which smacks of him being a sexual predator rather than a pedophile. We're going to jump back into where we left off last week at this point. Again, I am using a number of works on Seville as references, one of which is In Plain Sight, The Life of Lies of Jimmy Seville by Dan Davies, As It Happens by Jimmy Seville, God'll Fix It by Jimmy Seville, as well as the various reports that came out as a result of the revelations about Seville. If you hear a little mewing in the background, I have apologized. We have a kitten in the house who has decided to exercise his rather large lungs. In 1967, Seville was riding high on his wave of popularity from his various endeavors. You know, the television shows, Top of the Pops, all of his radio programs. When the mayor of Otley contacted Seville as well as his mother in an attempt to get the television personality to come for their annual civic ball. Otley is a very small village near the Yorkshire Dales. And the mayor was hoping that by having Seville come there, it would bring more eyes as well as revenue to their village. Seville's response to his request was, and I'm reading this directly from Dan Davies' book, although I am not going to be reading the response from the mayor. Seville wanted six things. One, make sure that my normal fee of 200 pounds goes to an Otley charity. Two, I wish to sleep the night on the Shevin in a tent, which you will organize, plus sleeping bag and large torch. Three, a guard of honor of six young ladies in another tent, of course, to keep me safe. Four, a trip round Otley Hospital in the next lunchtime Saturday. Five, the presentation of some Otley honor, frame drawing or painting of Otley. Six, some cigar and matches. 
this is important because this became kind of a calling card for Jimmy Seville. These kind of demands for him to appear at a specific place for, you know, whatever it was, a charity ball or anything, you know, civic-oriented. He always insisted on having a, quote-unquote, guard of young women to protect him. According to Seville, quote-unquote, my ultimatum of no tents, no girls, no me meant that the council had to go through with it. I'm going to be reading from As It Happens by Jimmy Seville here to get his thoughts on this particular instance. A notice for volunteers in the paper brought well over a hundred young lady applicants, all determined to spend a night on the moors. The council had to decide which six, so they called a special meeting. Some of the members only then realized what they were doing. We can't have a council meeting to decide which six of our girls sleep with this man, said several, more bewildered than outraged, so half the council left and half stayed. Six girls were selected, and all of them were given matching mini skirts and white boots as befitting a ceremonial bodyguard. They looked good enough to eat. I duly arrived in the town, and it was the start of an incredible evening. The first thing was that the father of one of the girls arrived and hauled her off home. She protested loudly, but Dad would have none of this preposterous situation. Her company had brought along a millionaire pal who just didn't believe my story. When he saw the crumpet, his eyes shot out a mile, and his total conversion... Conversation for the evening was an incredulous, are we kipping with them? Technically, no. As we were in the tent next door, or were supposed to be, the dance finished in spectacular never before and certainly never since fashion, and the moment of truth was upon us. What follows must be the greatest ever. It was raining, but who cared? The tents had been erected in the afternoon in a secret glade known only to the chairman. The blankets and such like were kept in his house to avoid damp or theft. At 3 a.m., an unbelievable sight appeared in a sleeping town. Several cars, headed by the mayoral one, drove to the foot of the hill, a local beauty spot known as the Shevin. From the cars, out climbed a dozen people, five girls, me and my pal, the chairman, his wife, and his equerry. On our heads, we carried our blankets, and in single fire, like Sherpa porters, we set off up to the tents. I was convulsed with laughter and with a real pain. So, Seville and this other individual whose name was Jimmy Corrigan, who was a owner of some variety clubs and bingo halls around Yorkshire, were basically left alone on this hillside in the middle of the night with five young women. Seville liked to tell the story that, you know, somehow they ended up in the girls' tents and that they all had a marvelous time. However, you can find photographs of the next morning with all seven of the campers looking disheveled, and in fact, all five of the girls look absolutely miserable. Four of the girls have a pained smile on their face, while one of them actually looks like she was enjoying herself. You can find literally hundreds of photographs of Seville in similar situations where he and a pal have spent the night with a group of young women who were provided to them, and in almost every single one of the photographs, the girls look uncomfortable and unhappy. That's not to say that what happened 
was forced upon them. It could simply be that the young women realized during the preceding events the reality of the situation that they had gotten themselves into. Some people may be scratching their heads wondering, you know, how that's possible. Well, 1967 was over 50 years ago, and sex was not openly talked about, whether it was in Britain or the United Kingdom. Some girls knew what it was. Many of them would only talk about it in hushed tones with their friends. So I have to imagine that these young women realized much too late what it was that they had signed themselves up for with these two men, at which point it was too late to back out of the deal as it were, or possibly Seville and his friend just forced themselves on the young women. You know, that's one of those things that we will never know the reality of. We will get back to the life and crimes of Jimmy Seville in just a moment. selling author of the House of Silver Dolls, the Blood Gotch Trilogy, and the Throwaway Girls Olympia, comes Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers. Quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been warned. And we are back. We were talking about Seville, you know, claiming his prize for appearing at the Ockley Civic Ball, which that year, 1967, was redubbed the Pop Civic Ball, and how the picture of the young women afterwards, many of them looked distressed in some fashion. 
so as I've stated numerous times, not every one of Seville's victims was necessarily an unwilling participant in his shenanigans. There are those who will think that what I'm stating is a way to excuse his behavior. It is not that in, at all. In fact, whether the individuals who participated in what Seville did were willing or not, my personal opinion is if they were under the age of 18, British law notwithstanding, they were victims because by this point, Jimmy Seville was well into his 30s, and he very easily could have found women who were within his own age group who were willing and capable of doing the things that he wanted. However, his star status provided him with the access to the young and vulnerable and he took advantage of it, which is something that many, many men in similar circumstances during this period of time did. One story that has arisen years later from the Otley affair is that young one of the young women said, in fact, that a group of youths had followed them up to the campsite and, in fact, attacked them during the night, and that when Seville turned, he became very nasty and very violent towards these young men. She stated that these youths saved them, although my personal opinion, given what Seville wrote in his autobiography, is this is more likely than not a fantasy constructed by this young woman's mind in order to assuage some of the guilt she felt over what transpired that evening. Seville's life story from this point onward is littered with similar stories to the Otley affair of Seville being invited to attend, you know, an a civic event, as I've stated, and requesting odd accommodations, you know, a guard of young women. He usually brought a friend along with him, and almost always these wishes were granted. For those who think that, you know, they wonder why he was able to get away with the stuff he was doing for so long, especially given the fact that he was really so open with it, there's a number of reasons for that. Again, a lot of these towns that invited Seville to come out, there were small little hamlets and Jimmy Seville was seen as a big, powerful man. You also need to take into account that the public consciousness at this period of time was fairly naive and innocent in terms of sexual predators. People forget that in this period of time, things like this were really just seen as quote-unquote boys being boys. And you also have to take into account the fact that in the Western world, at least, for the majority of people saw these things as victimless crimes. Why would the, a woman or a young woman put herself into this situation knowing what's going to happen? 
it's her fault that the things that happened transpired, be it by the way she dressed or was acting or the fact that she went in willingly knowing what was going to be expected of her. That was the mindset of the times, and unfortunately with a lot of people, that's still the mindset. You see people out there today, they slut shame young women because, you know, well, if you weren't dressed like that, it wouldn't have happened to you. No, bullshit. It doesn't matter how these women are dressed or any of that sort of thing. Jimmy Seville was a full-grown adult by this point. He knew what he was doing was wrong. He could have very easily requested women who were of age. He chose not to because he knew and understood that the majority of women his age or within his age group would not be willing participants in what he planned, but that people who were under the age of consent or maturity, however you want to look at it, in my mind that's 18, were more pliable to his desires and his demands. An interesting bit comes out of this period of time. A reporter by the name of George Tremlett, who worked for a newspaper in Britain called People in, from 1961 to 1968, has gone on the record stating that the paper was actually investigating Jimmy Seville during this period of time, and that the reason they were investigating him was over rumors that Seville had a liking for young girls. According to Tremlett, they had names of individuals who, who were abused, and apparently the people had also, during this period of time, hired Seville to do a series of articles for him, so therefore it was a conflict of interests to run a story concerning one of the individuals who is working for your paper. And although this particular manner of a story dying concerning Seville and his practices is unusual, it is not the first nor the last time that a newspaper killed a story concerning Jimmy Seville over their relationship with him. Yes, the majority of the time papers would kill a story when the pressure was put on them, either by friends of Seville in the form of law enforcement or other dignitaries, or because Seville threatened to bring charges against the paper for libel. Sometimes he was friends with a reporter who gave him news of what the paper was up to. At others, he was friends with the editor of the paper, and he was able to just talk to them and get them to kill the story by promising something in the form of, you know, an exclusive story about Jimmy Seville. So the editor would agree without realizing what it was that Seville was asking them to do. This falls into the category, you know, Seville liked to tell people he wasn't smart, he wasn't sneaky, he was crafty, and he was. He was always out to protect his public image and keep anything untoward about himself from the newspapers unless he himself put the green seal of approval on it. Referring back to the Jimmy Seville documentary, one of Margaret Thatcher's aides is talking about how she had been trying to get Seville a knighthood during the 1980s and how 
you know, the people who make such decisions saw it as a bad idea because he had a sort of unsavory history. And then he goes on to read a series of newspaper articles that Seville was interviewed for where he talks about his time working in the dance halls and roughing up youths and sort of hints at his connections to the underworld but he's incredulous while he's reading it as though this was a revelation when the reality of the fact is from the inception of his mainstream acceptance within Great Britain Jimmy Seville always told these stories it wasn't something new him giving these kind of interviews was nothing out of the ordinary i personally think that his reaction and the reaction of people in power when these stories came out was a way to try and save face in order to show that no we can't give this man a knighthood because look at these revelations that just came out it's simply not true. The revelations didn't just come out. They'd been out there for years at Seville's own behest. As 67 turned into 68, Britain began to go into a recession. Uh, it was known in Britain as the I'm Backing Britain campaign, wherein people across the country would send in money of their own in order to attempt to help sage the national debt. Jimmy Seville saw this as an opportunity to further self-publicize, and it was at this point that his ties to Leeds General Infirmary really became strongest. Seville began volunteering in earnest during his free time at Leeds General Infirmary, now, he'd already been doing this for a number of years, but during the I'm Backing Britain campaign, he really got into it. And the hospital was glad to have him because Seville decided he was going to do a two-week stint at the hospital, which was actually a rarity for him during any period of his life for Seville to stay put in one place for other than a few days. But he calculated and weighed this carefully in his mind, and the pros outweighed the cons for him because he was able to get newspapermen from all over the country to attend his very first day, as well as news reporters from the BBC. This is the first time in Seville's life that we really see him turning it up as far as you know, his charity contributions. He'd always been into the charity, but at this point, with his star on the rise, you know, he's got a way to really fix the public image that he wants to portray in the mind of those who are watching. And he does this. Years later, he would go on and say that, you know, a... 15 minutes is a publicity stunt, 15 years is a lifetime dedication. Seville earned the moniker of Seville the Social Worker because of this stint at Leeds General Infirmary. Seville stated about 
his now experience with hospital, quote unquote, I think the majority of people like me and I think they like me because they know I'm honest. Well, after his death, friends of Seville stated that they believe he became so entrenched within the hospitals because it gave him the emotional support that he needed in his life, which he had nowhere else inside of it. I personally believe that Seville attached himself to the hospitals twofold. One, it gave him excellent publicity, um, and in doing so, helped him shore up power around himself because the royals and politicians, as well as individuals who were involved in the police forces, were oftentimes tied to these hospitals in some way, shape, or form, and by doing charity work at these hospitals, he could therefore, you know, come into their sphere of influence. But it also allowed him to have access to young women who would fulfill his sexual needs, whether that was willingly or unwillingly. And this was a was to become a major part of the public persona of Jimmy Seville. He was always talking about his sick and crippled children and how dying children would call him just because they wanted to talk to, quote-unquote, my Jimmy. And this is a recurring theme throughout his history, as well as really the history of Britain. His people referred to him as either my Jimmy or our Jimmy. This is really how he entrenched himself into the public consciousness and the heart, and one of the reasons why so many people do not believe the allegations that have been levied against him. And I can understand that to a point, because if someone is so beloved, even though they're odd and weird, you don't want to believe the absolute worst of them. These same people come forward and say, you know, there's no real evidence that he did these things. You know, he was pretty open about his sexcapades, etc., etc. My take on it is whether there's smoke, there's fire. There have been so many credible allegations levied against him in the years since his death. It's inconceivable to me to believe that he wasn't abusing some of these people. I'm not saying he abused them all. Again, I've stated over and over again, some of these individuals were willing participants in what he was doing. In fact, there's a number of them who got on the record who stated they were willing participants, and it was only later in life that they realized that they were victims. That's one of those important pieces of Jimmy Seville that you have to keep in mind when you're looking through all of this stuff and listening to and watching everything on Jimmy Seville. Just because they were victims of his doesn't mean that they weren't willing victims. They just didn't have the mental capacity at that period of time to understand the seriousness of what was going on and that what he was doing was absolutely wrong. 1968 was also the year that Jimmy Seville began his long association with Broadmoor Hospital. For those who don't know what Broadmoor is, it's an insane asylum, for lack of a better term, where for the criminally insane, individuals like the Yorkshire Ripper were housed there for a period of time. 
I believe that either Myla, Myra Hindley or Ian Brady may have been housed there. But it's not a nice place, regardless. At some point in 1968, someone from Broadmoor, a patient, contacted Jimmy Seville asking if he would like to come in and fundraise for them and be a member of their group, which was called Nutters, Inc. Seville stated that he responded to this individual by letting them know that he would only become a member of this Nutters, Inc. and participate in things going on at the hospital if the boss would contact him. The individual running the hospital at this period of time reached out to Seville and there began his association with the hospital. Seville had a walnut that was on a lacquered piece of wood inscribed with Nutters Inc. slash Jimmy Seville. And he got this from individuals at this hospital slash prison. And it was this type of stuff that really started to entrench Seville in British society. However, there were other changes coming in 1968 that further established Jimmy Seville as, you know, a face in Britain. Pirate radio, such as Radio Luxembourg, went the way of the dodo bird at some point in the mid to late 60s. And the BBC was quick to jump on this void, launching Radio 1. Now, before I really jump into what happens with Radio 1, I'm going to explain a little bit about pirate radio. In Britain at this period of time, for the most part, there was no such thing as commercial radio or commercial television. You had the BBC and a couple other smaller stations. And these stations would really only play the stuff that the government looked on as being, you know, morally sound. So... In the 60s, a lot of radio stations popped up, such as Radio London and Radio Caroline, Radio Luxembourg, and they operated outside of the jurisdiction of the British government, usually in rusted-out hulks of ships that sat out just outside of British waters, and they would transmit their radio signals into Great Britain. Well, Britain was eventually able to outlaw these pirate radio stations, and therefore clamped down on their airwaves. And as a result of this, the BBC was able to move in and branch out from doing stoddy old you know, news and music shows into pop music. And they did this by launching four radio stations, uh, Radio 1, Radio 2, Radio 3, and Radio 4. And Seville was almost immediately attached to Radio 1. He was hired by a man by the name of Robin Scott. Scott pulled DJs from these pirate radio stations, including 
Tony Blackburn, Ed Peel, Ed Stupot Stewart, all names known to the youth of Great Britain. As I said a few moments ago, Seville was linked with Radio 1 almost from the start, and I say almost from the start because initially he was not contacted by Robin Scott because the BBC had fears that there might be some kind of moral outrage over Seville's on-air antics, which had been on display for years at this point on Radio Luxembourg. Seville stated that the reason he wasn't contacted at first was because he was earning three times as much as the other disc jockeys, and this very well could be true because at this point Seville was a numerous time winner of Disc Jockey of the Year. But again, it also has to do with the public image that he had been presenting prior to this through television and through the radio and his various other public appearances. My guess is that BBC saw that their numbers were not as high as they had hoped, and because of this, they decided to reach out and recruit the number one disc jockey in Great Britain. When Seville did eventually come in to Radio 1, not many months after its inception, he had a deal that was different than everyone else's. Seville claimed in later years that his deal included the BBC buying him a new Rolls Royce every year, which may or may not be true. However, it should be noted that Jimmy Seville did in fact have a new Rolls Royce every year from this point forward. But he also had a show that was much different than any other show being presented by the BBC. It was called Seville's Travels. And basically, it had him spinning records interspersed with interviews from normal, everyday people that he encountered throughout his travels across Great Britain. And more than anything else, it was another way that Jimmy DeSaville distinguished himself from his peers. You had all these other DJs who came and went, were being hired, were being fired, doing these sort of standard radio programs, and then you have him who is doing his own thing that nobody else is doing, nobody else is attempting to infringe upon what he's doing. So, in addition to being accepted by the establishment, both on television and with his radio program, he is further distinguishing himself amongst the pack of radio DJs and television presenters by doing something completely different. You might be thinking, why did none of the other DJs try to do what it was that Seville was doing? A, they didn't have the power that Seville had at this period of time, but I have to believe there was also a level of fear involved as well because Seville was known to be a pretty prickly bastard if you crossed him or stepped on his toes. And although I've never encountered anything saying as such, I have to believe that there may have been veiled threats coming from Seville to other presenters 
letting them know that if you take my gig from me, you're going to have problems. And as already demonstrated in the program where I discussed Seville and his ties to Manchester and the underworld therein, Seville was more than capable of carrying out these kind of, you know, assaults or whatever it was he would have done to these individuals. And people knew this. You know, a lot of these people moved in somewhat similar circles to Seville, but they also heard the rumors about him. So there's your reason why they would not jump in on what Seville was doing, because this guy, we don't know what he's capable of. We don't know who he really knows. We just know that he knows a lot of important people and that there are rumors that he can bad things happen to the good people who cross him. But Seville was still building his power base and his stardom around this period of time, 68-69, Seville gets a new show on BBC One called Quiz Bingo that saw him culling contestants who would form teams from the various hospitals across Britain. And this added to his level of respectability that people who worked in the hospitals were now willing to come on the air with him. I'm going to share a quote to end this week's episode. This is from a man by David named David Eager, who was Jimmy Seville's personal assistant during this period of time, who claimed that he noticed a change in his boss right around this period. Eager said, one of the things he always said to me about this business is the most liked person is also the most hated because it's worth hating something that other people like. This is why you are always good news for a newspaper. You've got to be aware that the more you become known, the more you become part of the establishment, the more you're going to get people hating you. I think that's a very telling statement from Seville because really what he's saying there is that the more popular you become, the more scrutiny that the media as well as those who are in power are going to put you under. And unlike many who were in similar positions as Seville, he was always aware of the scrutiny that he was under. That is directly tied into the coalescence of power that he had been undertaking over the last decade because he's being fed the information about what is being said about him, what may or may not be about to be printed about him, and he's able to preemptively strike now before any of that can happen. And he is is a master of it, but he's even going to become even more masterful of it. As you're going to see in the next episode when we move into the 70s, and he is basically given that green stamp of approval by the establishment, something that very few in his line of work would ever achieve, especially to the levels that he was able to be accepted and approved of. Until next week, the Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Again, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star review. 
and go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon and become a member for as little as $2 a month. Until next time, I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. Stay morbid. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.